You're listening to the Irish Times Roisin Meats podcast. Welcome back to Roisin Meats. My guest today is Clementine Wemaria. In her memoir, The Girl Who Smiled Beads, which she wrote with co-author Elizabeth Vile, Clementine describes a childhood brutally disrupted by the Rwandan genocide in 1994. She was only six when she fled her grandmother's house on foot with her sister Claire, who was nine years older than her, into Burundi. The pair moved through southern Africa, staying in refugee camps or scratching out a living before being granted asylum in the United States in 2000. They went through eight countries. I think she learned something like seven languages. It's an, it's an incredible story. I spoke to Clementine about that journey, about how she embraced life in the United States and what it was like to be reunited with her family after 12 years live on the Oprah Winfrey show. And you can check out that clip on YouTube. She also spoke to me about why it's so important to her that we see people with backgrounds like hers as more than just their situation that they have survived and to not pigeonhole them as refugees. I began by asking Clementine to explain the title of her book, The Girl Who Smiled Beads. Yes, The Girl Who Smiled Beads. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fairy tale. It's a tale like the Alice in the Wonderland uh, of, of my country is a story that I grew up hearing about the world. That's how I was able to fill into the world. My nanny used the story to bribe me to do anything, you know, say, you know, brush your teeth, I'll tell you a story. And it's one of those fairy tales, you know, that actually had an end. Uh, many fairy tales in my country have no end because each person is able to add on. And that one, I made it all up. Um, there's, a, uh, there's an actual one, but I made it up. But also, it's a story that um, that's how I viewed myself. I always wanted to be that girl when she smiles and gems just appeared everywhere. Um, and it's, it's, it's a magical story. It's, uh, the child is a, is, is a superhuman uh She's a half thunder, half rain, half human. Mm. And so I always wanted to be that girl. Mm. And you say that when you smiled beads, that you, the beads left would leave a trail so that you could, you know, your family could find you as well. So it had a very practical yes. kind of symbol, sim, symbolism in your, in your journey. Exactly. So the girl, um, you know, this woman is seeking to have a child, you know, terribly. And a child is meaning life she wants to have a life to hold and and to love and to share with the world however when the thunder and the rain gives her this child she realizes that this child is magical so she does not tell her neighbor she does not tell anyone she keeps it a secret and uh and so the whole house is full of beads hmm. and uh, once the daughter, you know, finds her way out of the gate and she goes from one hill to another, the mother could only follow the trails of beats she left behind mm. because no one else knew. So I always thought that if only I could smile harder, the beads would appear in all the places that my sister and I, you know, fled to in all eight countries my mother who followed the trails of beads we left behind. Mm. And mean, it's incredible <laughs> to think you you can imagine a six-year-old and a seven-year-old, eight-year-old thinking like that. Take us back to when you were six and when you were told to go and visit your grandmother, who you loved visiting, but you didn't realize that it was really the start of 
trying to flee uh, what was going on in your country. So, so tell us what happened. Yes, I mean, I always start by saying the girl who smiled beads because that's how I viewed my world. My whole world was filled with, you know, the experiences that I was having was was reflection. Uh, then my nanny could make a story up a, about it for me. But when the conflict started, you know, she was not there to help me add on it, to help me understand what was happening. So I started making up on a whole idea of what was happening. And so, you know, at the beginning, and I tried my best in the book to give somebody a context of what I remember as a child. First is my parents' faces. And second, no one wants me to play in my mother's garden. And then third is I'm hearing noises that I've never heard before. And then later on and said, you know, you have to go to your your grandparents and 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 then looking at my mother saying, well, can I take that? Can I take that with me? And my mother refusing. And next thing you're my grandparents and it's not as joyful as it used to be. You know, mm. when you go to countryside, in any countryside, it's just so much life. There's livestock, there's farming, there's all kinds of dancing and, you know, all kinds of, you know, just all kinds of experience. But no one was doing what I remember doing. And the next thing you know, our grandmother is telling us, get out, run, go. And and for us, just like run and go, go where? I don't know. My sister just kept leading us from one place to another, um, meeting different people who were also flee, fleeing and going from one place to another. And in, in sometimes what I've been asked is like, do you remember what day it was? Do you remember what time? You know, when you're running for your life, when you're running from something that you don't really understand, time and space doesn't even matter. Your life is the only thing that matters. And you were only six years old when this this escaping and this running started. And your sister, Claire, was what age? Fifteen. Yeah. So she was yeah. your leader, but she didn't know where she was going either. But she, she was the one who was in charge. Exactly. And just like following other people or just going and hiding with other people, hiding by ourselves. Some people were so scared. Some people were crying and some people looked so sad. Um, and so it's it's really a memory that I, you know, I remember as a green. I remember as a green in my brain because, you know, to articulate that kind of moment with words, it's not enough. Because I was a child and I did not have a full vocabulary, even in my language, to be able to say what it was. But I try, I do my best in the book to really offer that. And what were some of the experiences you had? You, you mentioned there are eight countries. I mean, it's, it's incredible to think that yeah. you and your sister survived because there was so much turmoil and conflict and horror going on ar- around you. So what were some of the worst moments that you both experienced? You know, I try my best. You know, writing the book, I had to go back to those places, but it was in the comfort of my home, is with the person that I had spent, you know, two years with trusting to deliver and help me 
remember. And so when I try to think about the horrors, it's 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 a nightmare for me, and and I try not to to go there. But in the book, I really go there because it was therapeutic. It, you know, it, it's that kind of walk. You don't have where you're going. Where you're going, sometimes you're not really wanted. And when you get there, you, you are kicked out. You know, I remember, at least maybe I wouldn't say it's one of the worst, but I remember us fleeing between Zaire to go to uh, Tanzania. And a trip that usually takes five hours ended up taking double of that time because when we got in the middle of the lake, because we were crossing the lake, you know, the the little motorboat ran out of gas and several people had to kind of push the boat and we almost sunk. And there's nothing like watching, especially at that time my sister finally had a child. This is a year later after, you know, had a fled Rwanda and now we were had, you know, left Burundi and now we were in Tanzania. And then a year later, war started there too. Mm. And there was just nothing more scary and more, even I don't even want to go back there to just watch people crying and mm. praying and and throwing things in the water, you know, one by one so that we don't sink. Because your sister met a man in one of the refugee camps and began a relationship, yes, and, and had had that child and, and more children with him. So w- was yes. that something? Uh, do you know that that it helped? Or I mean, there's, there's so many stories about people having uh, care aid workers beginning relationships with people in in those situations. When you look back on that, what's your take on it? You know, I I don't have that much take on it. That's Claire's story to tell someday, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just we were able to get out of a camp, right? We were able to go into you know to Congo, and what is it was Zaire then. And when we got to Zaire, we had a wonderful life. I had everybody wanting to be my mother. Everyone wanted to be my aunt. Everyone wanted to be my sisters and brothers. You know, everybody wanted to be something. There was a point when we were in Zaire when I completely forgot that I had had life before that. Yes, yes, I was aware that I did not have, you know, a mother and a father and my siblings and my neighbors and my relatives, but everybody wanted to be somebody wonderful to me to a point where I, like, that's the life I knew. But a year later, war started there too and we had to flee and the people who had it so cared for me and loved me also had to pack up the little that they had and flee to another country you also talk about the fact that you used to write on everything everywhere you went i'm just Mm -hmm. referring back to the beads leaving that trail but also leaving a physical trail with your name hoping as a child would i suppose that you would be reunited with your family because all this time you must have been desperately missing them or was it a case of compartmentalizing and sort of like you say forgetting that that life ever existed before well so when we left uh zaire and the war this is 1990 uh, 19, early 1996, 
when we left uh, Zaire, we went to another refugee camp in in Tanzania. And in Tanzania, we were literally barbed wire in. Right. We couldn't get out. And the only thing that could get out were the trucks, right? And so anywhere that I could scribble my name on to just say if if it is possible that somebody knows my name. And, I, you know, I write my name in cursive. And that's the signature that I use mm-hmm. in every book. You know, I write my, my mom had taught me to write a way to write my name. And I just thought if she saw that. And then, you know, right by Lake Tanganyika, you know, Lake Tanganyika is the longest, deepest fresh water. That was like the, the longest, deep fresh water I've ever seen in the, you know, in my world, at least between age, you know, zero to at that time when I was seven. I started collecting rocks. And, and that was the way for me to remember, you know. Uh, and then I was here and then I was here. Yeah. And every rock had a different places that we had been because some places were there for a year some places were there for three months some places were there for two months and so by the time you know went to Tanzania and then by the time went to Malawi into a different refugee camp where that camp has been there for you know since 1993 you know, and there's Somalian refugees and Burundian refugees, Rwandan refugees um you know, Congolese refugees. So I collected the rocks. And even if there was no physical walls because of life, there you are in such a deep fear, like you just sit and stay. And, you know, my sister refused. And myself, I refused by like writing my name everywhere. You know, anything that moved out of the of the camp, my name was on it. <laughs> You talk about your sister as a kind of genius, um, and I know you don't use that lightly, but it, it does seem quite incredible that she was able to take charge of that situation and use her wits to get both of you through to a point where you were able to go to America. She seems like a, a very a, a resilient and amazing person. Yeah, I mean, the resilience and the knowledge that she had to be able to get us from one place to another. That's what I have used to be able to survive in America and not only survive, but thrive, you know, and is the witness of being like, what works, what doesn't work? Where am I wanted? Where I'm not wanted? Yeah. You know, where where may I flourish? Where am I not flourish? Because, you know, and I'm not saying this very lightly, you know, there's no anywhere in the world, there's this story that when you are a young woman, and especially when you're a person of color, like we are, in a descent, in a descent of African person, the story is that we are less. The story is that we are not strong. The story is that we have to be abused and used. And my sister refused that story, and I refused that story. That's not how we were raised. We were raised you know, a mother telling us that we are all children of our creator and this is our earth and this is our world. And it shouldn't be ever be less than that for ourselves and those around us. And that's the mechanism and that's the the the, the background thought that my sister and I both have had. You know, you don't 
In the story in which is written by many people who are seeking refuge, the story that is written, the, the, the system that is there, it does not help one survive. And not even that does not help anyone thrive. And so Claire, she is our modern, you know, when you look at it, she was like a modern Joan of Arc. <laughs> the person who just refuses that. Yeah. And by refusing that, you do end up in America. And at that point, you're 12. Is that right? And yes, yeah, so we arrive in the United States and I do in the the book has three parts. And so the arriving in America is the sort of the second part of the book. Uh, and uh, we got there. I was 12. Claire was in her 20s, probably, I think, 21. And we just embarked on a very separate journey. Yeah. But but together, like in one place, but separate. So tell us about that, because she was she was a mother at this stage. Um, and yes. how many children did she have? She has two. Well, she has three children. Yeah. Uh, she had another last one in 2001. And so she had a, three children. And I was taken in by a family uh, that lived about 45 minutes away from her. Okay. who really wanted me to have uh, uh, some type of childhood and go to school and make sort of a life beyond just, you know, the life that it was offering to Claire and her family. Mm. And and so Monday to Friday, I lived with them. I went to a beautiful school where, you know, every teacher, um, every neighbor really wanted to take care of me and share their skills there, share their knowledge. Um, and then Claire, you know, became a single mother. She separated from her husband. She became a person who just, like, wanted to lift every part of, you know, the paying the rent and, you know, taking care of the kids when I was gone and... A very different life. But yet you managed to stay united because like you say, your life was not, I'm not going to say idyllic, but you did get kind of the best possible because you you were lucky enough to be taken in by these people who wanted the best for you and you got that wonderful support. And meanwhile, I suppose she was eking out her life as a single mother. But you managed, however different your lives were, to cleave together, to stay together and support each other. Absolutely. You know, when... When she was working on weekends, you know, sometimes she worked three jobs on a weekend because I was home. I was busy just making sure that the kids had, you know, clothes to wear, food to eat, you know, have done their homework and they are taken care of. And they're respecting, you know, their elders, they're respecting their teachers, they're respecting themselves. And so... When people look at us and say, oh, you know, you've got this really great book out there and you've done this, you've graduated from Yale, you've done this. And I'm like, no, the best thing that I I have accomplished is Claire and I raising these children. Mm. You know, we raise them in the circumstances that a child comes out and they are pretty hurt, but they are the most loving and most kind and most smart just really, really smart, not just only, you know, book smart, but, you know, they are, you know, my niece travels all over the world, uh, you know, by herself. And my nephew is, 
you know, runs around and playing football and making everybody joyful. And mm-hmm. my niece is just like, oh, I don't want to do anything. I just want to <laughs> hang out. You know, I just want to observe everybody. Mm-hmm. And so all of them are, are just a reflection of our joy and of our work and of us longing to be more. And Clementine, your life in America in terms of uh, this, the high school and you were a cheerleader and you really sort of, <laughs> you, you soaked up every kind of American experience you could. But did, were you yeah. very conscious, you know, that obviously you had come from a very different um, upbringing and had such an extraordinary uh, experience with your sister through eight countries, you know, that did you find it hard to fit in or did you not want to fit in? Was there kind of a resistance to that? It, it was both. You see, you know, yes, I was, I started school at age 13 and finally like clicked in by the time I was 15, but I was a full adult, you know, when you go through such a chaos, you know, between age six to, you know, time I'm 13, like I had seen the world. I had seen the worst of humanity and I hadn't seen the best of humanity. And so for me, everything was just a lessons and everything was just fun. Some of it was fun and some of it was funny, you know, that people who take, you know, just jumping up and down and smiling serious, you know, to me it was hilarious. And I was just like, I want to go do that. I remember uh, when I saw cheerleaders and babies right after school, you know, because the school that I was in, they had created this curriculum for me, just for me to be able to focus on English. And and then after school, I saw, you know, a bunch of this, you know, girls dancing in the uniform and jumping up and smiling. And then I went back home and I looked at my 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 American mom. I looked at my mom and I said, well, you know what? I want to do that too. And she was like, oh, goodness, great. And anything I saw, I wanted to do. <laughs> and she let me, you know, when I said that I wanted to run a track, she got me shoes. And when I wanted to, like, I want to sing, she's like, took me different places and got me whatever equipment I needed. And so she was so proactive in me getting lost mm. and and me being very curious about, you know, anything, you know, I told, I told her, I was like, oh, you know, I want to do, I want to do set design. And she's like, what do you know anything about set design? Mm. She didn't even say mm-hmm. that. She was like, okay, let's just, you just do it, you know. And so she herself was so... Um, like, just do whatever. As mm. long as you do your homework, <laughs> as long as you do your homework, do whatever. And, and in terms of academics, I, I'm just a curious person already. And so diving into books and and then having all these different characters become a mirror, you know, was wonderful. You you start the book in, um, which you wrote with Elizabeth Vile, um, yes. I should say, who you, you mentioned earlier, becoming, you know, having a great trusting relationship with, which just, mm. you'd have to do to, to do a project like this. Uh, but you do start the book on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I'd love yeah. you to tell me about that experience because you'd entered a competition uh, for an essay yes. competition and you'd won it. And as soon as I started reading this bit in the book, I, I had to go off to YouTube to, to see it happen <laughs> in real life. I'd love to hear your account of it because it seemed quite strange to me reading it. I wasn't quite comfortable with it, to be honest with you, as a as a kind of form of entertainment, which essentially that's what it was. 
so, so you were basically reunited live on, on television on the Oprah show with your family who you hadn't yes. seen for a long, long time. For 12 years. Yeah. And for a long time, you didn't even know whether they were alive or not. Yeah. For seven years, mm. we all just were, you know, in question. Um, you know, that moment is, is a tricky one, you see, because to other people, it, it, it is whatever you make it to be. Yeah. You know, and, you know, in the book, I really share my feelings about it in in different stages because when it happened, I was just baffled. I didn't have any words. I mean, you see me falling. Yeah. Almost fainting. Yeah. That was me for the next like four years. Wow. You know, that moment you see me falling and crying and raising my hand. That was my whole life for four years. I felt like I was just falling and falling and falling. And then like my mother grabbing me and lifting me up. You know, it's one of those things like to really think about that as an entertainment. Like to really think also that as a story. That is an amazing story. (laughs) Right? Yeah. That is an amazing story. Like, I always ask myself, like, why did it happen to us? And and then the only answer that I can have is one of the, when after the show, this woman came to me, like very older woman came to me, and she was like trying to push everyone out of the way to get to me and held both of my hands. And she said, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And I just didn't get it. And then I tracked her down. And then I found her later on. And she said, I've been waiting from my whole life for this because I was never reunited with my family. Uh-huh. You know, she herself, you know, as a child, as a baby, in fact, very maybe two or three years old, she was sent away yeah. from from Poland and and then her whole life lived in other people's homes and always wished and she was told that you know that she had been separated from her family and always wished to be reunited with her family and that was her moment through you cuz she yes that was her moment for me yeah. from me to her and to many other people whose families, they've been separated, they will never know. But I know. And so when Oprah say it's a very graceful moment, is the, you know, that joy, that transpends time and space. It is true. But in reality, as a television, some of it is just like, what these people <laughs> these people have been only like few flights away why hasn't this happened already like yeah. what is this is this a joke and so everybody takes it as it is but for me now i use it as wouldn't it be wonderful that our human our humanity surpasses all these different categories and labels that we have created 
that separate us both mentally, emotionally, and physically. What if we could have that reunion as well? When you talk about your family, it's it's very moving because that's been one of the biggest challenges in some way because you had moved on so far that to rebuild that relationship, say with your parents or your, even your siblings that you hadn't seen for such a long time was still difficult and even towards the end of the book remains difficult. There's beautiful scenes with your, with your mother in Paris and in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the, 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 the challenge to connect again, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it has not been very easy, you see. You know, 12 years, and then, you know, my mother came a year later after this show because a few days they had to leave and go back. And so my mother and my younger sister came, and I do write about that moment when I have jealous, <laughs> you know, when I have this deep jealous of my little sister just jumping in my mother's lap, like every child can just do that, you know? Yeah. You know, and I was just so envious of her for a while to a point where I didn't even try to go home. I refused to go home because I react. I feel I don't I'm not numb anymore. I feel everything. And, you know, to look at my mother and say, where do I even start telling her the stories that I have forgotten about the places that I saw and people that I saw? You know, and then a year later, my dad, my father, and my two siblings came. And I'm looking at them, I'm like, I don't even know these people because our traits are still the same in terms of like our core moral, like moral values as a family. But as like experiences, like my sister and I have sets of experiences that, you know, they don't. Because living in a, eight different countries, we picked up all these different cultures, all these different ways of being. And, and like, even though we are together, like, the time has robbed us of each other. You know, in TED Talk that I recently shared, I talk about that. It's like, this kind of, of separation robs us of our time together. And I can't sit and just be only in gratitude. I don't want to lie. It's not true. We are having a hard time connecting. We, I've tried and I, I, I'm, I think I'm a very exceptional person when it comes into building relationship. At least not the best, but I try. But the, the way I've tried, it's so difficult. And I don't wish for anyone to ever, ever in their lives have to deal with that if they have choice. Do you, you talk very interestingly about the refugee sort of person and the way people are stereotyped and pigeonholed into one thing. Is that important to you in writing? Was that important to you in writing the book that people might have a different perception of, of everybody who makes these extraordinary journeys and somehow survives them and lands somewhere else that people might have a better understanding of that? Yes. And so I, you know, reading, I'm such a huge book nerd. So reading, Mm -hmm. I just thought about, I, you know, and, and not only just reading, but experiencing life. People are seeking refuge 
for so many things, right? For economic reason, for religion persecution, for wars. So war is one of big themes in my life because being in three wars and survive, you need to do something about it, you know? (laughs) And so I really wanted to remind those people who have forgotten about seeking refuge. And my goal is to switch the language we use to to excite people to see the human first beyond the label, to see the human first before categories, right? And so, for example, one of the language that you're going to continue hearing is, and I'm also training myself, it's a person seeking refuge. It's a family seeking a refuge. Mm. It's a community seeking refuge. It's an individual seeking refuge. Because we are taking a person and then we're seeing what we're seeing what is it that they are doing in action, right? Not a refugee and not an immigrant. A person seeking, you know, immigration. You know, just immigrant. You just wanted to integrate. And so I really love English. And I love many languages, but I feel like many languages, especially, um, don't give us an opportunity to connect to our fellow humans as equals. Mm. We connect with them as like the other. And that othering leaves many people who have lost, they have lost their home. You know, they have lost their families. They have lost their whole lives. And to be able to go into a place to seek peace, to be able to just be pigeonholed into such a definition that many do not understand what is behind it or the feelings behind it is disgraceful, is inhumane. I think you make a really beautiful point there, uh, Clementine. Another thing I'm really interested in is, uh, you know, we talked about how you you have been through so many different experiences and what you became very skilled at is being the kind of person that needed to be uh, in that place. So you Mm -hmm. kind of were able to be very perceptive and if somebody wanted you to be this kind of person or that kind of person, what are the other kind of, what was the other impacts of you as a personality, as a character that you still hold on to now that that haven't changed are you still that kind of chameleon type person or have you learned that to to find who you actually are now and to be that depend no matter what happens kind of thing i've always known who i was other people had a perception of yeah. me who i was you see mm. <laughs> it's other way around mm-hmm. it's other people wanted me to act and i acted accordingly that's what i mean because, yeah that you were able yes, to do but, that I've always known that I'm a flower child. (laughs) I grew up in a garden. You see, I grew up, my mother had created this whole world for us. And that's the dream that she had for us. She, you know, the garden, my mother's garden was filled with all kinds of tropical plants and fruits and vegetables you could possibly think of. Papayas, mangoes, guavas, you know, pineapples, you know, avocados, 
anything you possibly think of. If you had a visit in my mother, like, oh, anywhere, like the embassy, my mother would just go to the embassy being like, anyone here who'd want to bring me seeds from Holland, <laughs> from England? And next thing you know, you're like the plant of your country is in our garden. And my mother's going to send you a picture of it. She's like, come, <laughs> come and sit and be nearby your plant, you know? And so I grew up in that kind of like very whimsical magical world it, it, to a point where everybody was welcomed and everybody could come in and play and no matter who you are no matter what you have been of course as when I was little I was a little bit of a terror to anyone who was not kind to the other but but I tried when my mom saw me she was like now let everybody play you know can need to be nice and so I still I am that person I've I didn't go away. I, I Only other people made me go away. But those who truly saw me, they come to my house with flowers. They come to my house with mangoes. They come <laughs> to my house with oranges. You know, like they come and stay. The people who know who I am know exactly how to be themselves in like my mother's garden. So... But, you know, life life throws you things, you know, and, 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 and in fact, you know, recently I was in uh, Roscommon uh, last year, like exactly last May, I came to Ireland um, to Roscommon and I came to visit my dearest friend, Maria. And Maria, uh, she's one of those people, she's just like my sister. When life was now working out for her children in America, she was like, I'm done with this. I'm going back to Ireland. <laughs> and and I looked at her and I was like, I'm coming to visit you. <laughs> I'm going to come. And and I came back and we spent a day just going around. We went to the ferry. There's like a ferry tree around. Yeah. Uh, uh, we went to the ferry tree and we spent, you know, the kids were giving me a tour. Uh, and, and, and I felt like I was back in the garden. So... The world will offer itself to your imagination on how you are supposed to be in the world. Or you could take charge and say, this is who I'm going to be in my world. That's really lovely as well. I have yeah. to say, I could listen to you all day. You have a beautiful <laughs> way of describing this. But I'm, I'm fascinated day. by Maria because where did you meet her? She's an Irish woman I, who's I, living yeah, in America. she's an Irish. Yes, she's an Irish. Uh, Maria and all the kids. I'm sure she's going to be listening. <laughs> I, when you see, I sent it to her. So Maria went to America maybe 15 years ago and created a life of herself and her children. She managed two two giant building in California, in San Francisco. And there was a point when she was, you know, her, her, her last baby, Connor, I started my project with Connor in my bed. Like Connor would be dropped off and I watch him mm -hmm. and Maria would be inspecting all the building to make sure everything will be okay. And, and then when she was like, I want to go back home because I could be with my family and I could be in the garden and I could let the kids play outside. That's the life that I want for my children. And and then she just went back to Ireland. And um, I'm so excited to, I wish, 
I wish I had more time. Maybe I'll come back in the fall. I think you need to and come. And I'll do a book tour. <laughs> and I come. She was going to come to Dublin before, you know, these yeah. things were cancelled. So, um, I'll come back in the fall, and I want to see Ireland in the fall because I've seen it in the spring. Okay. Well, you look forward. To it. It's not quite as spectacular as some parts of America in, in the fall, unfortunately, but it's still it, nice. It doesn't <laughs> matter. I just want to be seeing all those rolling hills oh, that you all have lovely. there. Well, listen. Just tell me before you go um, about. I mean, you've you've been on an incredible journey even in America as well as well as the one you were on as a child but you you graduated from Yale you you were appointed by Barack Obama onto this um the board of the US Holocaust Memorial Museum which was a big deal mm-hmm. so to have come as a, as a person seeking refuge as you so look, well put it uh, to to get into a point where the president of America is appointing you to something that's quite a journey i mean how did that happen, really, when you think about it? <laughs> I don't know. I was just being me and ended up in all these different places. Um, so, you know, my advocacy work and my passion for humans and for all humans to be treated with kindness and respect and with dignity is led me many places. And the Holocaust Memorial Museum is one of them because... Um, you know, many people who survived that atrocity have become my friends, have become my mentors. Their children have become my, you know, my guiders, my fathers, my mothers. And so within that community, you know, they were able to see my gifts and they were able to invest in my gifts. And so for me to be able to be appointed to serve, it's just make sure that my voice is heard too. Mm. Because, you know, we have... Rwanda, we have Burundi, you know, those things happen, but we also have Bosnia, we also have Cambodia, you know, we also have all over the world, these atrocities happening, whether it's recorded or not recorded. And, you know, I was among other people who were just aware that something need to shift about these kinds of behavior. And so if it, if it has to be Obama to appoint me to uh, mm-hmm. this position, I would say yes and go forth and make peace. Mm. Yeah. And what's he mm-hmm. like? You know, what, what, what is it? Serving or... No, Obama. what's Obama like and then what's it like serving Obama? <laughs> well, you know, as a leader, that's, you know, I know him as a leader. I do not know him as a as a friend. I wish we could be friends. <laughs> but, you know, that's a different story. But, you know, it's it's a person who is in a place of politics. You know, they are who they are in whatever world that they projected. But I hope that someday I can sit down with him and have a conversation and I just only be appointed by him to lead me. He he did write me a letter though oh, when, nice. I, when he was a senator to congratulate me and my work when he was in Chicago. And I I respected that so much. So so much. And it was so encouraging. So what's next for you and your sister and what's life like now? Uh, you have the book out which um, is doing very well and is getting a lot of positive acclaim. So what else do you want to achieve, Clementine? You know, I am excited right now. I am really excited to do another major book tour, but a book tour in the fall that is going to be more interactive. Because right now the book is only in the bookstores. I want to have the books in restaurants, right? Because people who are working in the restaurants are in need of being heard. 
right? I want to be in the streets because people who work in, in the streets need to be heard. Anyone who is coming from a place of seeking refuge, especially from a place of oppression or oppressor of, of, of just like needing help, I want to talk to them. I want them I want them to be heard. And I want to put a mic on them. And I want to just say, what is it that you care about? What is it that brings you joy? And what is it that is taking away your joy? And how are you going to do, you know, about it? And how may your neighbors, your family, your community, your world at large support you in this? So that's what I'm excited to do. Okay, well, I'm sure and I've I've no doubt that you'll achieve that and much more. It's been absolutely a pleasure to talk to you and I hope you do come back again and talk to us, uh, Clementine Wamaria. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and thank you for sharing our story. That was Clementine Wamaria there and my thanks to her and what a wonderful speaker she is and hopefully she will be able to come back to Ireland to talk to us at some point. But that's all we have time for this week. Her book, The Girl Who Smiled Beads, is out now. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan. I'm Roisin Ingle and I'll talk to you next time.